Welcome to a special edition of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad. And I am Dr. G. We are joined by a very fascinating lady today, Professor Karen Carr. She has a doctorate in classical art and archaeology and is the author of Vandals to Visigoths. She also has a book coming out in 2022 called Shifting Currents, A World History of Swimming. But we are not here to talk about that today. We are here to talk about another book that she has coming out, probably in 2023 with the University of Liverpool Press, which is tentatively titled Women, Clothing and Money. So welcome to the show, Professor Karen Carr. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Fantastic. So let's dive straight in. This new publication of yours takes quite a radical approach to to looking at the relationship between women and money. Can you briefly outline what makes your take so different to what has been published on this topic previously? I think there's, there's been a tendency to start the history of money with the development of coinage and to kind of say before coinage, there's just barter or, you know, people have to take care of everything for themselves and they don't, uh, there's no trade, there's no economy, uh, or that there's, uh, and that women, you know, typically in the sources, uh, in, even in modern histories, women typically sit at home, they take care of the children, they're, I want, the word in my mind is useless, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, obviously, they're useful in terms of sex and reproduction, but they're they're not thought of as being useful with their hands and their their brains. Uh, and so, when women are when we see women being exchanged from place to place, it's typically in terms of men's prestige and having more wives or more women slaves or uh, needing. Uh, wanting to have a lot of children or some kind of, you know, sexual thing is implied. And so my point here is that women have always done, as they do today, work that's not just about reproduction uh, or about housework. And uh, so that's that's kind of where I started with this, is women are not, you know, just totally helpless. And that we can see that particularly well if we look at the world before coinage. So if we're thinking about this idea of like, what is the world like before coinage? How do you see women being involved in the earliest economic systems in human society? Well, so imagine you're in a world that does have an economy and people making things and trading things, but it doesn't have coinage, right? There's no coins. And actually, these days, that's pretty easy to imagine because we all have credit cards. But imagine you also (laughs) don't have credit cards. There is a certain amount of trading on credit, just like we do today, where you tell a guy that, you know, you're going to buy this, but uh, you run a tab, basically, and then you'll settle up with a sheep or something. When it reaches the level of a sheep, you you pay it all off, just like your credit card today. But there's always going to be some need for cash, you're in a strange town, you're traveling, you don't have anyone who's willing to let you run a tab, particularly if you're an untrustworthy kind of person like a soldier or a slave trader. Nobody wants to give you credit, so (laughs) you're going to need cash. Uh, And what are you going to use for cash in a world without money, without coinage? 
And the answer, I think, is that people are using uh, seashells, beads, clothing, like elaborate, like think silk dresses or, or you know, very fancy scarves or something like that as, as clothing. Those, those are all things that make good money. They're good to use as money because you can uh, easily move them from place to place. You can, especially with beads, you can easily carry them around in your pocket, just like coins. You can string them on a necklace so they're even easier to carry than coins. But somebody has to make those things. And I think that's where women come in, that women are making, they're carving the little beads, they're stringing them on the necklace, they're spinning the thread to make the elaborate clothing. Armies of women are engaged in these uh, activities. And one of the reasons why men are always trying to capture women and have large numbers of women at their house is not that they're so insatiable sexually, or that they want to have so many children, though, you know, a little, but, but <laughs> largely that, they, that women kind of embody money, right? The more women you have, the more money you have, because the women are going to be sitting there all day making money. Uh, and so women in themselves become a sort of high denomination currency, because you, if you look at a woman, you can sort of imagine all of the beads or all of the clothing that she's going to make when you enslave her. And so it's not just about their sexual reproductive abilities. It's really about their hands and what they can do to create money. I, I was really fascinated when I was looking at your outline for this book because you cover such a huge amount of time. You know, you're going from prehistoric times really all the way through to the modern era in terms of what you're looking at. And it struck me that potentially one of the things that has caused us to overlook this labor on the part of women and their contribution to these early economies in particular is perhaps that some of the things that they're producing aren't likely to survive over time in the same way that coinage does. So particularly things like textiles and also the, the string that you might put beads on, obviously it might break down over time and the beads scatter. And so it's only perhaps in certain contexts that you can actually see that that was once a necklace or whether it's in artwork or something like that. But it is it must be hard to trace these sorts of developments for that reason. It is. And I mean, as you think, as you might suppose, beads last a lot better than clothing. And we do exactly. have actually a lot of beads going back as far as the as the very earliest people. I mean, going back more than 100,000 years now, we have evidence that people are piercing seashells and using them as beads. So uh, with beads in particular, we can trace it very far back. And often, in fact, we can see the clothing through the beads because we see people being buried in Central Asia, for example, in what's now Russia, with 10,000 beads, 5,000 beads sewed onto their outfit. So there they are laid out in the tomb. We see their skeleton and we see, uh, you know, a, a row, several rows of beads that would have been embroidered onto the chest and others that were clearly embroidered around the wrists or the going down the length of the arm. Uh, we can reconstruct the clothing by seeing that they had beads like they're, they're closer than you might imagine beads and clothing because people embroider the beads onto the clothing. But by the Bronze Age, we're really not relying so much on records of, on the actual clothing or the actual beads. 
as on, uh, we have writing. So we have documents where people are saying things like, be sure to have 25 of the um fabrics ready for delivery by Tuesday. And it's clear from that that people are not, this is not, as people often imagine, women making clothes for their own children, for their own husbands, for themselves. Because why would you make 25 of the um fabrics? Even if they're working at home, they're doing piecework that they're going to deliver to a boss who's going to, who's ordered it in a certain quality, in a certain size. Because it's going to serve as money, because that's why it needs to be standardized so that you can tell someone else that you're going to deliver them, you know, 150 of these um cloths by Wednesday to pay for the piece of land or the slave that you're buying or whatever. I try actually to avoid slave. I mean, I, in in my writing, certainly I try to say enslaved people rather than than slaves. So if I say slave today, it's hard to to avoid slipping in a podcast, but that's not what I intend to say. <laughs> no shit, no problems. So thinking about this large time period that you're dealing with, and you've sort of already started to allude to some of these changes, what is it that starts to cause women's roles in these economies to change? And I'm particularly thinking of the introduction of things like coinage. Right. So great question. Um, What happens, I think, is that around the Bronze Age, a little later in the Bronze Age, you see people starting to make more use of silver. So, and at this point, it's just raw silver. So they'll say things like, I'm going to deliver you 25 umcloths and uh, this many pounds of silver or this many grams of silver or, or, you know, in small quantities or in large quantities. And so you can see that silver is kind of becoming more a kind of money that they're aware of. Silver has some great qualities for money. One of the things you want with money uh, is to be able to control how much of it there is in circulation. And our government, your government and my government, also spend a lot of time determining how much money is in circulation, right? If there's too much money in circulation, prices go down, people have to carry inconvenient amounts of money around in order to buy something. If there's too little, prices go up. Nobody can afford to buy anything. There's unrest in the streets. In order to control it, people realize that it's better to be importing something from far away so that you can cut it off, right? If there starts to be too much, or you can import more if you need more. Uh, But people can't just go out and pick them up off the ground. That would not work well as money. Uh, So initially... You know, even in the Stone Age, people see that, and that's why they're using seashells, which only, like, there's only going to be seashells by the coast. So if you're not at the coast, you can control it. Silver works the same way in Mesopotamia and Egypt. They have very little silver indigenously. And so they realized that silver is something they can get from Europe, and then they control, they can control the quantities. So it makes a good money. So that you can see them in the Bronze Age starting to send Phoenician ships and Greek ships to the Western Mediterranean to get silver. And the earliest coins are actually made of a a local, semi-local material from Anatolia, which is a mix of gold and silver. But uh, they're, they're sort of experimental. But coinage really takes off with the availability of European silver. And even then... This is kind of complicated, but even then, 
they're not really using it as coinage in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Like even when they get it in the form of coins from Europe, they're still weighing it. They're not accepting these foreign coins at face value. Uh, and when they, if they add, you know, bronze or something to the coins to stretch them a little to make there be more silver coins, they're not acceptable in uh, Mesopotamia because they're weighing them. So they know how much silver is actually in them. Marking the coins, it seems to me, serves more for the Europeans themselves as a way of circulating coinage because in Europe, silver isn't rare. You could just go dig up your own silver. So the way to make it rare in Europe is to make it into coins. And then you can, you know, boil people to death for counterfeiting coins and control the money supply that way. And that I think that's why Europeans get so attached to minted coinage, because that's where the silver comes from. This sounds like it, it sort of dips into this idea that we've now got competing monetary systems at play. We've got this progression potentially from things like shells, beads, fabric, and now metal products all in perhaps competition around a similar period of time, or at least overlapping with each other. How might this affect what's going on with women's production of things like beads and fabrics? Right. So I guess at the end of the the previous question, I, I didn't actually get to how this changes the way people see women. And you're you're really getting at that here. What happens, you can imagine that silver doesn't, for the first time, right, if people are using a lot of silver as money, that doesn't involve women making it. You don't need to maximize how many women you have in order to get silver. You need men. Men go down in the mines and dig up the silver. Uh, Men purify the silver in foundries. Men strike coins. Women are not really involved. And so there's kind of a shift Europeans want Mesopotamians to buy their silver. That's how they're going to get rich. And they try to promote that silver, I think. This is, this is you know, really the, the most radical part of the book. They try to promote that silver by acting like silver is kind of manly money, masculine money that you would want to have. And the, what people had been using as money before, the beads and the clothing, is kind of girly, really. You know, oh, you're still using that girly money. (laughs) We have man money here for you to use. Classic patriarchal move. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's trading in beads anymore. (laughs) And, And interestingly, this makes, this doesn't seem to really take hold in Mesopotamia and Egypt. They're like, okay, we'll use silver. It has good qualities as money, but... They go right on using cowrie shells and beads and, you know, glass beads and fancy silk robes from China and stuff as money throughout this whole period. There's never a time when they, I mean, people are using cowrie shells as money in India and Iran into the 19th century. Wow. There's there's no moment where people in Mesopotamia really are like, oh, yeah, we'll only use silver. But in Europe, they become very convinced <laughs> that they, they don't want to use these other kinds of money. But of course, for them, it's much more important because 
Europe, I mean, one of the one of the points I want to make in this book is that we think of the Roman Empire and the Greeks often as kind of the center of the world because they describe it themselves as the center of the world. But how how is Europe the center of Afro-Eurasia, right? It's way off at one end. It's completely isolated. And that's a big problem for early people and even for the Greeks and Romans, finding something that you can trade even though you're way off at the side. I was I did a sixth grade class a couple of years ago where we were talking about the Silk Road. And I may I said, okay, you're Europe and you're China and you know, in the middle here, you're India. And now you have to trade these pieces of paper that say cloth and silver on them from side to side and you get the cloth ones and over in Europe you get the silver ones and you know, see how much you end up with at the end and Boy, the people who were Europe were very complainy. They were like, we're not getting anything, right? Because the people in the middle are just trading with each other. And they they don't even want to come way over here to our side of the room. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) It works well for Europe to trade silver, but they're always worried that they're going to run out of silver. I mean, they are going to run out of silver, right? There's a finite amount of silver in Europe, unlike silk robes, which you can keep making indefinitely, you only have so much silver. And they, there's many, many Greek and Roman texts sort of warning people not to import all this fancy clothing, condemning women, and in fact, blaming it on women, characteristically, that they import the, oh, women want these fancy dresses, women want fancy scarves, and glass earrings and things. And you know, who's going to pay for all of this? They're very worried about the balance of trade, that all the silver is leaving Europe and it doesn't come back. And so that even more makes Europeans think of things like fancy clothing that are manufactured as bad, because if you're importing them, you're bad. Women as bad because they're, they're, they're the ones that they're blaming the fancy clothing on. Although, in fact, in the sources, we can totally see that men are wearing silk shirts and having silk curtains in their houses and stuff, just as much as the women are. Maybe not as much, but it's it's hardly the women's fault anyway, if people expect to see them in silk dresses. From that, they get to sort of blaming foreignness, right? Because these are things that are being imported from far away. They're like, women are bad for wearing them. The things themselves are bad because they're luxuries that people don't need. It would be better if we wore simple wool like our ancestors. Uh, And that all of these things are coming from abroad is like also like weird and fishy and uh, suspicious. So uh, there's this kind of constellation of women, clothing, foreignness, all being bad together in the European mind. That just comes from being so far away from everything else. I must admit it kind of blew my mind when I read your perspective on these issues because the period that Dr. G and I most focus on being the sort of late Republic and early empire, that's when there does seem to be a lot of concern about these fancy clothes that women are wearing as it becomes more and more common for them to wear these decadent fabrics and looking at it from this perspective just really blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, I've never really 
put all of these factors together before like this. <laughs> <laughs> That's really where this paper started. The very first glimmerings of the paper was me asking that question. Why are they so down on women wearing fancy clothing? And it's interesting because it provides this really strong contrast with what we know is that rhetoric that comes through in that late Republic and early Imperial period, which is making clothes for the household is a positive. And like Livia gets really held up as one of those figures. And it seems to be that it's the case that it's okay to do this within this very narrow constraint. And without outside of that, it becomes a problem again. Well, they, they like the idea that you're making, if you're, you know, weaving wool for your Livia's making Augustus's clothing, he says. He, he only wears homespun that she's made herself. That's wool, right? That's local, that you're not spending silver abroad in order to get it. And that's really the point that they're making. But also, yeah, one of the ways that you identify a good woman is that she's always got a spindle in her hands, that she never stops spinning and, and you know, all of the, the most famous women of antiquity are constantly spinning or weaving if you want to show that they're really upper class. And it's not that women didn't spin and weave at home sort of recreationally the way you might knit sweaters or, or something like that. But there's no way that Augustus appears in public in, you know, homespun. He's not George Washington. And even George Washington is only doing it performatively because he doesn't want to buy European-made clothing because of the revolution. Before the revolution, all his clothes were European-made. <laughs> right. So it's it's not it's not realistic to imagine that really anybody in the ancient world is making their clothing at home, is wearing stuff that their wife made for them except in the same way that you might wear a sweater that your girlfriend knitted or something. Yeah, it's, it's really driving home for, for me at the moment because we've just been focusing a little bit on the women in the regal period in Rome. And certainly that theme of working the wool comes up a lot when we talk about the accounts of the Sabine women and how they were told that the only the only labor they were supposed to do around the house was working wool and spinning and that kind of thing. And then you've got obviously people like Tanaquil, who is definitely associated with weaving. Uh, I believe Dr. G was telling me that uh, her actual work was meant to be preserved for centuries after her supposed death. And then of course, Lucretia most famously being discovered doing the right thing when everyone else is doing the wrong thing and working her wool well into the night with all her maids or enslaved people around her. I mean, I think even in the time of the early Republic and the Kings, I think it's unlikely that very many people are wearing homespun. They may be wearing European made wool, but it's being made. I mean, they think even in the, the Odyssey, right, Penelope and her maids are like, there's a lot of enslaved women there making the clothing. Like Odysseus is not wearing clothing that Penelope made all by herself. I mean, it's just not really likely that people make their own clothing for their own household because you need all these different kinds of clothing. You need lightweight clothing and heavier clothing and, you know, clothing made of linen and clothing made of wool. Like nobody's really going to just have the one thing that they wear. And it's so much easier for a woman who's spinning to specialize in 
I make this kind of cloth or that kind of cloth than it is to change spindles all the time and have different size spindle whorls and sometimes be spinning linen and sometimes wool. Like nobody really does that uh, or they only do it recreationally. I think this heads towards um, some of the bigger questions which your work is really starting to touch upon um, that has come up already is thinking about the, the extent to which enslaved people are involved in this manufacturing process and also potentially the question of, I don't want to say race necessarily because it's it's kind of a, a tricky concept when it comes to the HOL, but people from outside of the local area um, and their involvement in these kinds of production and manufacturing styles. So this is an even more radical part of the book where I'm, I'm sort of asking myself, before there's silver, before coinage, before they start exporting all this silver, Europeans are already importing beads and fancy, probably fancy clothing. Uh, we see the Greeks shipping wine to the Gauls. Uh, and what are they getting in exchange, right? Why are the Greeks shipping wine to the Gauls? Why are the Phoenicians bringing little glass onakoe to the Spanish or whatever. Presumably what they're giving in exchange is, is enslaved captives. I mean, Europeans, when they first arrived in West Africa, what they gave for enslaved captives was exactly that. Beads, glass beads from India, Venetian trade beads, and trade cloth. It was called trade cloth because that was what you did with it. You picked it up in India in prearranged quantities and qualities, and you traded it for enslaved captives in West Africa. So I think that same trade is going on in Europe before the silver and that all these enslaved women who are in Mesopotamia and Egypt making the cloth, making the beads, that a lot of them come from Europe. I, I wouldn't try to put a, a percentage or anything on that, but but that a fair number of them come from Europe uh, maybe mostly from Eastern Europe, from Thessaly and, and north of the Black Sea and those areas, which we know to have been major slaving areas. But a lot of them also from Gaul and Germany and Britain and, you know, just coming down through trading pathways. Uh, one of the things that led me in this direction was uh, Michael McCormick's work on the early Middle Ages, where he was able to show uh, in like, it's like 2002 or something like that, that really he, he's looking at all the shipping going across the Mediterranean, pilgrim, people who are going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and stuff in the early Middle Ages, and how often they say that there are enslaved people on the ship with them as part of the cargo. And they, they say it all the time. And so if, it, if that's happening in the early Middle Ages, and, and we know also now that the Vikings, for example, are attacking towns, capturing women and children, and taking them to sell into slavery around the Caspian Sea or, or in, you know, at the mouth of the Volga, no, the other end of the Volga. If that's happening in the Middle Ages, I think we would, the burden of proof is on us to say that it wasn't happening before that. To some extent, what I want to say is that selling silver got the got Europeans out of the slave trade, right? That it, because they were selling all this silver, they didn't have to sell as many slaves. They were able to get silk robes and things without selling slaves. 
by selling silver. If you look at that and say, that's why you've got the Pax Romana, that's why you've got so many centuries of peaceful coexistence in the Roman Empire, is because instead of doing slave raiding all the time, they can just sell silver. That's kind of interesting, I think. But from my understanding, what you're also arguing is that once the mines start to run dry, they do resort to the slave trading again, eventually. It's an excellent question. I mean, you're totally right that they they run out of silver eventually. They've been worried about running out of silver since the time of Augustus or even before. And then sure enough, they do start running out of silver. We can see when they run out of silver because we've got these great ice cores from Greenland uh, there where they, they drill down into the ice and they pull out these long cores of like long cylinders of ice from the, from the glacier and they can divide them up into centuries and they can see that in a given century, there's about this much lead pouring into the atmosphere that gets uh, into the water that's then frozen into the glacier. And there's a lot of lead in the time when they're mining all this silver in Europe because silver comes mixed with lead. Like in the underground, that's how you find silver. It's all mixed with lead. And in order to get the silver out, you have to melt it out of the lead. And when you do that, the ratio is like 400 to 1 or something. There's a huge amount of lead compared to the amount of silver, which incidentally is why it's so dangerous to have people working in silver mines because they inevitably die of lead poisoning in a few years, which the Romans were totally aware of. Uh, the Greeks and Romans are like, yeah, I wouldn't work in a silver mine because you die of lead poisoning. You know, there's no bones about it. They, they absolutely know that. We can see in the Greenland ice cores that the amount of lead that they're pouring out into the atmosphere by mining silver falls off starting uh, in the second century AD and then really falling to uh, almost nothing by the 300s, by the fourth century. And correspondingly, we see an increase in warfare on the border. And what, what is that warfare, if not capturing slaves on both sides, right? We know from, again, the early Middle Ages where things are better documented, uh, that and and thanks largely to the work of Michael McCormick and and other people working in the Middle Ages, that Charlemagne is fighting on the border with Eastern Europe against the Slavs, right along a line which we still see as as kind of defining in Europe. And he and the Slavs are both capturing huge numbers of prisoners of war and selling them. Both sides are selling them to the East, to the Ottoman Empire, or what it, no, I guess it's not the Ottoman Empire yet, to the Abbasids and then to the Ayyubids or whatever. And that's, that's where the wealth of Genoa and Venice come from in the Middle Ages, right? That they're, they're, Venice is wealthy because it's absorbing enslaved captives from both sides of this war, which goes on for centuries and selling them to the East in exchange for, you know, the riches of Venice, right? For jewelry and and luxurious clothing and stuff, which they then sell on to the rest of Europe. But in the Roman period, Aquileia, which is not far from Venice, is also a really important city. And why is Aquileia so important in the ancient world? 
I think, again, for the same reason that Venice is important, because it's an, a, a place where people bring their captives in order to sell them into slavery. And so when you see all of this sort of endemic warfare in Europe starting in the 200s and intensifying in the 300s, I know people say third century and fourth century, but for my own purposes, when I'm writing, I feel like I make mistakes if I don't just write down 200s and 300s. <laughs> gotten in the habit that you I think that that they start relying more and more sort of reluctantly but they start relying more and more on the slave trade again because they can't rely on the silver and they they know that the silver is kind of running out and they have to find some other way of something else they can sell and the other thing they can sell is enslaved people I was really fascinated to see that you mentioned how Constantine kind of kept everything limping along for a little bit longer with his conversion to Christianity because he could tap those temple resources. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think that's, you know, fairly well accepted that that Constantine can put the currency back on a sound footing because he has an influx of gold and silver from confiscating the temple resources. But why does he need that? Why doesn't he just go mine more silver? Because there isn't any. Absolutely. So to perhaps start winding things up, although we're obviously fascinated by your theories about how central Greece and Rome were to this masculinization of money, I'm curious to know how you see this panning out into more of the modern era. Well, I think Europeans, because Europeans have so much dominated the world and how we think about the world, they've kind of carried that attitude with them to all the places that they've colonized, to Australia, to America, this attitude that, first of all, manufacturing is really not man's work. Uh, and you see, even when they're establishing the mills, I mean, people always say to me, well, it's men who work in like, you know, steel foundries and, and making cars. Yes, but we outsource that. I mean, really, we hardly do that in America anymore. And they, they don't really do it in Europe either. Really, most of the world's glass and steel and assembling things and making things is now done in Asia, which is where it was always done, right? It's it's outsourced to places where they think of manufacturing as a normal part of life and not where they think of it as kind of a girly thing to do. On the flip side, uh, money has remained a central focus, money and producing money. First, when Europeans arrive in South America and they discover the big silver mines there, they're like, hooray, we're back in business. We can start selling silver again. And they do. And then with the gold rushes in America and silver rushes in America as well. But also just today that, you know, what what, what does, what do Americans really, what business do Americans and even Europeans really want to be in? financial businesses, right, where they're, they're running the stock market, they're running uh, banks. Really, what, what, the, what makes America rich, for example, is our control of the dollar and, and the fact that other countries do their business in our dollars and, and nothing to do with manufacturing or, you know, girly stuff like that. And similarly with the slave trade, I mean, we, we go from Europeans eventually figure out how to stop enslaving each other and have peace in Europe by enslaving West Africans and then by enslaving, effectively enslaving, you know, 
rural Chinese people who, you know, people in Bangladesh who are at this moment working in, a, in effectively enslaved conditions, uh, making the clothing that you are currently wearing, that I'm currently wearing. No, I know. Well, I, I'm, I'm very involved in environmental issues. And one of the big things I'm always trying to push in my educational sphere is this idea of fast fashion and how it's really just imperialism and colonialism for the 21st century in that it seems to be the expectation in places like America and Australia and Great Britain that we should be able to buy cheap clothing. And the expense of that is that people in other countries like Africa and Asia, they don't deserve to have safe working conditions or decent working hours because we want to buy clothing cheaply. And we want to be able to throw it away and have something new than the very next day. So my point is, that's not something which developed in the last 50 years or 100 years. That's something that goes back 3,000 years, 4,000 years. Which makes me despair that we'll ever change the system. I I I certainly don't want to leave with that. I I feel that understanding it better is key to changing it. Absolutely. While I, I can, you know, the book, doesn't really attempt to change it, but it, at least if we understand why we feel that way, we're more likely to be able to change our attitudes. Oh, definitely. Re- recognizing the root of the problem might just be the solution. <laughs> and I think it's a really impressive um, set of ideas to, to think about economic systems in this sort of gendered lens as a way of sort of demystifying some of these concepts that are they come through in the ancient literature, but they're often chalked up as literary tropes and sort of casual metaphors. But I think you're hitting upon something that could fundamentally change the way that we might start to think about these systems in a longitudinal sense, which I think is fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we recognize these tropes so easily that we don't even notice them because we say those things ourselves. Oh, women, are, they're always wasting money on clothing and stuff. It just seems it makes us feel closer to Seneca when we hear him saying those things. Like we we recognize, oh, it's, they're just like us. Well, they are. I mean, we're just like them, though. We've inherited all these attitudes as we become conscious of them in ourselves, we need to also become conscious of them in the ancient world. Yeah, I think there is a real parallel to what you were saying before in the sense that I feel like these days women do often get criticised. I mean, I know I get criticised all the time for having way too many clothes Mm -hmm. and I take up way too much cupboard space, but I often fight back with, but I'm expected to have so many different types of looks as a woman. You know, I'm supposed to have my pajamas, I'm supposed to have my casual clothes, I'm supposed to have the clothes that I wear to work, which are very corporate, and they don't necessarily cross over into my day to day life, whereas a man can get away with having a few different business shirts in one suit. And that can take him so many different places. (laughs) When my son was about eight, he had to fill out a thing for school about, you know, who you are. And one of the things was, what do you like to wear? And he came to me and said, I don't understand the question. I mean, I wear pants and a shirt. (laughs) <laughs> what else is there to say about it? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, I think the girls in your class feel differently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. This is kind of a weird side note, but I'd just love to get your take on this. Uh, it's not really related to what you're talking about, but it's obviously just that idea of gender and money. What do you think about the the debates that are had in certain countries about 
putting more women or putting more Indigenous people on printed notes? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're going to feminize money by putting women and Indigenous people on it. (laughs) Uh, I I think the problem is deeper than that. Yeah. At the same time, you know, anything that puts women and Indigenous normalizes the appearance of women and Indigenous people in public is probably better than the attitude that they're hidden away inside the house and we don't talk about it. So, I mean, I feel like it's a step in the right direction, but it's a really small step. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that might be a good note to wrap up on. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to add for our listeners before we go? No, I think, I think, uh, yeah, no, to, just to thank you for having me. And, you know, this has been a great session and I, I am really grateful for the chance to say what I think. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians, which was recorded during lockdown. This episode was made possible by the support of our Patreons. If you too would like early access to all of our special episodes, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star review and following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you next time.